Have you ever wondered how successful architecture, engineering, and construction companies scale their business? Or have you ever wanted guidance on how to get more growth, wealth, and freedom from your AEC company? Well, then you're in luck. Hi, I'm Will Forat. And I'm Justin Nagel, and we're your podcast hosts. We interview successful AEC business leaders to learn how they use people, process, and technology to scale their businesses. So sit back and get ready to learn from the industry's best. This is Building Building Scale. Today's guest is Nathan Piper. Nate is the CEO of GRS Pros. He has founded, owned, and operated multiple construction and home service companies in the last 20 years. His personal mission is to efficiently, effectively, and ethically transform living spaces to improve the lives of the people he works with. GRS provides new construction and quality home improvement services to the Dallas-Fort Worth area and greater state of Texas. Uh, They'll be expanding into other markets later this year, which we are excited to talk about with Nate. They also live on the motto of built on trust, which is important in a cultural component. And over the past three years, GRS has been perfecting their training in preparation to create a training program that will help the labor shortage in the industry. That should be rolling out next year, 2023, with the completion of a new facility. Uh, but all of this great, amazing construction and, and building science expert that Nate is, if you asked him, he would tell you he is a husband, father, community leader, and philosopher first. So Nate, welcome to the show. Welcome to the show. Thanks, guys. Great to be here. Unfortunately, we didn't capture the last 10 minutes of, of pre uh recording because Nate was already dropping knowledge bombs on things that we didn't even talk about uh, in any of the pre-interviews. So Will said, we got to go. We got, come on. He's, he's over here dropping bombs. We got, we got to make it happen. So Nate, super happy to have you and uh, let's kick it off. Just tell us a little bit about your origin story, Nate. What gets you going? How'd you get to where you are? And uh, tell us a little history about GRS Pros. Yeah. So I, I kind of grew up in construction. It was one of those things where um, as a kid, my, my dad had some brothers and they all had a portion of, of construction companies and, and they ran their own things. And so on, on weekends, after I got done playing ball games, I'd go help them or in the evenings and, you know, sweep floors, paint, trim, carry shingles up on the roof, you know, just all kinds of stuff. I went off to college and decided I wanted to be a stockbroker. Uh, that lasted for about six months. And then, <laughs> and then I transitioned over back into construction, what I knew and, and got on to storm chasing and, Fast forward 20 years later, I've kind of grown it and had a bunch of companies, sold them, built new ones, and uh, GRS Pros kind of came out of uh, an evolution of all of that previous and some bad partnerships that then kind of led into a new opportunity. And so uh, it's been a fun ride. I really enjoyed it. And so really happy to have it. That's awesome. So one of the first things that I asked is like, what do you do, Nate? And your response to me, which was totally not expected, was uh, you change uh, people's identities, employees' identities. So obviously personal development, very important to you. So tell us about how you change the identities of your employees. Yeah, you know, personal identity is, is, a, is a huge thing. And I don't think people pay a lot of attention to it when they're, when they're looking at hiring people to come on. And... But the reality of it is, is when you have employees and they're coming on and you're you're looking at them and you're evaluating them, you're evaluating at who they are that day in that moment. And you're not evaluating them who they can be or who you want them to be or who they even want to be. Sometimes they don't even know. And so one of the things that I kind of stumbled upon 
throughout the years in the hiring process was that there's a lot of guys that kind of come into a to an organization. They have all of this stuff of who they who they think they are, and that could be. And I'll give you guys an example. I had a um, a young man who came into my organization. He is college graduate, had two degrees, was a waiter at a restaurant, and he just kind of gotten into this rut of like, I'm this low-end guy that's doing the bare minimum just to pay my bills. And he kind of got stuck in this thing. He was, you know, in college, he was not a part of the, the hip crowd, right, or the or the fancy crowd. He was just a, a middle-aged guy, and he couldn't get out of his own way to see his own success. And so... Throughout that process, you know, he came on, we got him started, and he always felt bad about himself. Well, it just kind of developed into, you can't be the guy that you used to be. You need to start to become the guy that's going to be able to do this job and be productive and move out of your mom and dad's house and start becoming your own person, your own man. And part of that process started with just a name change, like giving him a different name. And, and what we ended up doing in our meeting was we, we said, look, you can't be that person anymore. We, I'm not gonna give you his first name. I'll give you the middle name, what we call him. But his middle name was Aaron. And so we just said, all right, look, we all care about you. We want you to join us. We want you to be a part of us, but you can't be that, that post person anymore, right? So you're gonna make it a choice. We're going to help you in that. We're going to start calling you Aaron. Well, in just doing that identity shift, he was able to now look at himself in a different light. And he was able to see himself as Aaron, the guy that, you know, had gone through the training, had done the construction pieces, had, you know, picked up and used power tools, had figured out how to solve mechanical problems in the vehicle as well as in, in homes. And the confidence that he started to gain by this, he started to then introduce himself to his friends as Aaron. He got a girlfriend. She started calling him Aaron. And all of these things started to change the identity of the person. And it made me realize that there's so much that is involved in an identity that a person takes on as they are going through life's changes. And this was a guy that was 26 years old when he came into my, my organization. And so it's like, I figured out that that's a crucial age from, you know, you've left your parents' house or you tried to leave your parents' house, you've gone off to college, or maybe you've gone off into the service, but you haven't really figured out who you are. And you're set up on what everybody told you as a child in school and college and after. And you think that that's who you have to be. And the reality of it is, is that they can become so much more if they were given that opportunity. And so that became a big part of us being able to kind of like help people. And we don't do it for every single person because some people have, you know, they know who they are, but there's a big vast majority of people out there that, that struggle with their identity and who they are as a person and what their meaning is and where they fit in inside of a company organization. And so we just kind of created a training program that, that helps them identify themselves. And it also, it's worked out where we've been able to keep employees for longevity and and so it's been a it's been a wait 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 so uh, hold on i just want to interrupt here for a second so i don't know if people were listening or or heard this but you created a process to change people's identities so you essentially took you know i'm this i have this person and you know i i, I there's some spark in them but 
because of their confidence or, or lack thereof, or because of something that's happened in their previous history. So it's weighing them down. And you took, uh, you're taking a process and changing their identity so that they associate with a more positive light in comparison to whatever negative light and they're leaving that sort of that baggage behind, right? Is that, is that what you're, what you're doing? Absolutely. We kind of, we kind of help them so that they can see that the person that, that they were or the mistake that they made or the, the feeling that they have that's less doesn't have to move into today and it doesn't have to project forward into tomorrow. And so one of the things that we look for, we have uh, an on-the-job interview kind of scenario where we bring people out, we'll put them out in the field with a supervisor. And part of the training that I do with the supervisor is the how do they identify this person in their confidence level? Like that's part of our scaling of understanding who this person is as an individual. Because in this day and age, people don't want to navigate into the low end of labor trades, right? Because they feel like they can do other uh, endeavors that, that pay a lot more. But there's a vast majority of college dropouts and I don't want to say dropouts, college unfinishers, you know, then lead into these different lifestyles, right? Where it's like, I found them in movie theaters. I found them in convenience stores. I found them in, you know, Home Depot or where have you. They're just a little bit, they're, they're worn out and they're, they're feeling a little bit broken. And, and the supervisors then identify that. And then we'll put in our process to kind of like work through it and say like, that person that that felt like they could only get to that level doesn't have to be the person that can take this and, and elevate all the way up through the ranks and get to a point where they're they have confidence and, and security in their job and know that they can provide for themselves and their family. And so we kind of give them that pathway. That is incredible. It's Unbelievable. When you told me this, and I know I mentioned this, I was like, yeah, there's lots of research that depending on what you're called is you act a different way. You are you are a, a different person, uh, obviously, to, to what you're seeing here. Uh, it reminds me, growing up, I always been my last name. Everybody called me Nagel. That's just what that's what it was. It was just yeah. Nagel, 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 Nagel. Nagel is an animal. Like He is crazy. He is like, uh, I mean, Will can attest to some of the things he saw, you know, maybe not on the podcast. We didn't get that deep into it. But Nagel is the animal, right? Justin, yeah. on the other hand, is the, oh, you understand business. You understand scalability. You're, you can understand how, you know, operating in a business and how that works and you can see inefficiencies, but they're different people. So I totally see that in the same, I became a dad two years ago, right? So Dada, Dada is somebody else too. Dad yeah. is its own, his own person, right? And like, that's the, I need to be better. I need to continuously improve and, and be better, better, better because now dad, you know, dad needs to do that because dad makes sure that Franklin sees that type of behavior to become a better person as well. So I, I love this identity change concept and that's why we had to talk about this right out the well, gate. It's such a powerful thing, right? It's one of those things where if they see themselves as, you know, a college dropout, right? And they see themselves as somebody who who didn't reach the pinnacle of all their friend stuff, right? And and they they see themselves at a lower caliber. How do they how do they view themselves in your job, right? Or or as an employee, right? Do they 
Do they feel like they're actually equal to their to their you know coworkers? Do they feel like they've excelled past their coworkers and being held back? And what is this? Like you start to deal with emotional kind of stress inside of an employee. And even though most employers don't want to have that conversation and look at it from from the standpoint of like that's not my problem. Whatever that employee does, they're here to do a job function. I think that when you look at you know how secure they are in their job function, then helps production pro- productivity and the production of your company and the representation of your company then goes up, right? And so if you bring somebody in and they feel like, oh, I'm all, all I'm ever going to be is a dishwasher, and then you change their mindset and you give them this you know, security and who they are. And then the next thing you know, they're like, well, maybe I could be a superintendent. Maybe I could be a business owner. Maybe I could be this. And then they start, you know, that pathway of going upward instead of staying where they're at or diminishing. I'm, I'm a firm believer in this. And I tell this to my son all the time. Every day, you're either going to get smarter or you're going to get stronger. One of the two. You can't stay the same. And so if they're not increasing their, their mental capacity to go, go higher, then they're obviously going the opposite direction, right? And what happens in that? They have problems at home. They have problems with their family. They have problems with their friends. They have, and it's just a negative spiral. I've, I've tried really hard to, to focus on that and to change that, that mind frame or that mindset to be able to produce them in, and put them into positions where they can launch and go and elevate. Mindset matters right there. Mindset matters. So, mindset does matter. And you don't have to be, you don't have to be a millionaire to have a mindset, right? You don't have to be, you know, on that pathway. You just have to have someone that's willing to go through the bumps and bruises with you. You know? Totally. So that takes us to general recruiting, right? So obviously you feel that when you get a person in, you you have an ability and obviously training and a program that can be in place to to, to change the the quality or that, you know, the what what you get out of a person. How does this affect recruiting? I mean, are you still looking for a type or is there like are what are the metrics in regards to your recruiting? So currently I'm still running the spectrum and the gamut on recruiting. I think everybody is. Yeah. And I, and I think that has to do with just a perception that's in the marketplace for what we do, right? In, in the construction field, they don't market to come in and learn a trade, right? They market to come in and be a construction manager on a commercial job site where you learn a fraction of what you need to do to do the job function. That's what they market to in the construction realm. And so, there's this whole lost art out there that is, you know, passed down from father to son, generation to generation, brothers, and, and it's a whole lost art out there. So recruiting for me is, is a gamut of, can this person fit inside of, you know, the basic functions, right? Can they lift some, you know, a certain amount of weight? Can they put together, you know, fixtures and finger, you know, uh, complacencies with like screws and, and things of that nature. So there's that portion of it. But then, you know, when we start moving into, you know, the mindset, I think the mindset's open as long as they're not in a negative and, and shut off place and they're open to a new opportunity, then I can work with them. 
And, and I've even gotten to a point and, and I got compliments, what was it, two days ago, I was out on a project and it's it's a small little $50,000 remodel. And one of the, the homeowner, she pulled me off to the side. She was like, I'm really impressed that you actually have a female worker on your crew that's actually doing as much work as the male worker. And she was like, I, I, I just want to say thank you. And I said, well, I, I greatly appreciate that. I said, she earned the spot to be there. I didn't just give it to her. She, she wanted the job. She liked working with her hands. She wanted this. And so I gave her this opportunity. This is all on her. And she was like, well, it's really nice that, that you would actually consider hiring a woman. I said, I said, it's not about whether it's man or female. It's just whether or not they can do the job and they have the function and the capabilities to do it. And so when I'm out looking at, you know, possible recruits, I'm looking at, can they do the function? Are they coachable? Are they willing to work? And do they have a positive attitude? And then if they got those, I can work with them. And if they've got three of the four and the attitude needs adjusting, that's where the program comes in. That's where we start to train and talk and be. And it's more or less a culture. I know that culture gets thrown around a lot. Um, there's something to be said about it, but it's got to be an authentic culture. It doesn't need to be a fabricated culture where you create a bunch of words and say, we are this. It needs to come from the inside and it needs to be driven throughout so that people can understand what, what, they're, what they're experiencing. I believe the thing that you're referring to regarding cultures, those are aspirational values, not core values. Those are aspirational values. Yeah, absolutely. That's it. How does that that how how does that core value actually show up in your company? A lot, you know, like every company's got a page that says, Oh, we're accountable and reliable, whatever. You know, they they chalk up some marketing words, throw it on a web page and say, Look it, we got core values. So how yeah. does that really show up for you? Because it is, it is, cult- I mean, know, that it's, is culture. It, it, it shows up in a, in a numerous amount of ways. Uh, I'll give you a few examples. Last week I had uh, a senior project manager come to me and he was like, look, here's the situation. Uh, we had something going wrong. We didn't do anything wrong, but it's going to cost an extra amount of, amount of money to, to correct the situation and take care of the customer. And I feel like we need to do this for them, even though it's, it wasn't on us, so on and so forth. It shows up there, right? In, in that scenario, it comes to me in two ways. One, he cares about my customer as much as I do. Two, he, he's being honest and upfront and saying, hey, we're going to lose profit margin on this. And that's not an easy conversation for him to come in and have with me, but he's going to have the conversation with me. So he's showing me his integrity, right? And those things are starting to breathe through, right? I, I had a, a 1099 contractor come to me about, a, well, I guess, two, three months ago, and he brought me his check and, you know, he stopped me. He, he waited for me, you know, and he, and he stopped me and he says, hey, I need to talk to you. And I said, absolutely. What, what's going on? He's like, you overpaid me by $400. And I'm not, I'm not comfortable with cashing this check until we get this corrected and, and solidified. And, and it really stopped me in my tracks because I never in, a, in the last 20 years expected one of my trades to come to me and say, hey, you overpaid me, right? Like that just never happens. But that's the kind of culture that we're building. We're building things that, are, that, are, that matter where people take responsibility and they say, look, what's fair is fair and what's reasonable is reasonable. 
And if you overpaid me, then I need to make this right before I cast a check. And it was one of those things where, you know, I said, thank you for being honest. I greatly appreciate everything you do because you're honest. Take that as a bonus check from me to you and, and we'll settle up later, you know, but the, but those are the things that happen. Right. And that's part of the culture that comes in. It kind of creates that space for them to, to be who, who they want to be, you know, and I'm not, I'm not going to say that, that we're all, you know, religious driven or, or biblically driven, but there is a sense of, you know, I let everybody know, Hey, I'm a Christian and I'm going to be a Christian and that's it. And, and you guys can talk to me about things and I'm not going to pass judgment on you. We're just going to deal with life as we deal with it. And I kind of leave a lot of space open there. So, so having a moral fabric, you know, the moral fabric of the company is a living, breathing thing. Like it's well, isn't that isn't that what everybody's core values are? Yep, you yep, know, absolutely. <laughs> or it it should be at least. <laughs> you know, as you're talking, I uh, I want to kind of connect the dots. You had talked about um, creating a franchise in the construction industry, and based and what I'm hearing is you like to build up people. You want to talk a little bit about that and kind of why you're looking to why you're looking to do that? Yeah, that's a great question. I do. I I I find that I find that my my passion in life is really transformation, right? I love I love transformation. I love transformation in buildings, I love transformation in space, I love transformation in people. And in that, I started looking at franchisees and how do they work and why do they work and what's the process there. Most franchisees work from a financial standpoint only. I'll give some examples. I won't give, you know, the company names, but some of these companies will, will charge $75,000 to be a franchisee. And then you've got to spend another $75,000 to get, you know, product or, machinery or you know vehicles or what have you so you've invested $150,000 into this into this company and then they send you off to training and then they you know say this is how you get customers and then you're off on to doing your thing it's a high barrier to entry for somebody who's making you know $50,000 a year and it's a long time till they can recruit or recoup their, their, their investment and then go forward. So I started looking at some of these things. One of them that I really enjoyed was Chick-fil-A and Chick-fil-A's kind of founding its process. And part of its process, if you wanna be uh, a franchisee for, for Chick-fil-A, you've gotta put in five years of service and then you can become a franchisee, which is a really interesting concept but after I thought about it, it really makes a lot of sense from the standpoint of you get somebody in who learns the culture, learns the process, learns all of the, the tools and the techniques that are used to be able to make that, that, that store profitable. And once they've you know, gotten involved with you and they understand, then you let them go out and they become a franchisee if they want to. And I started thinking about it. I said, you know, in the construction industry, there are a bunch of franchisees, but they're just setting them up with basic tools. I, I know of a few of them that are in the painting industry where you spend a bunch of money, you go to a two-week seminar, 
or class. They teach you how to spray the, use the spray gun. They teach you how to put up a markup on the billing and then they send you out. And they're, they're repeating the process and the franchise company is making, making good margin. It's a good business model. I don't, I don't have anything against that. I just feel like some of them need to be a little bit more hands-on. And I think they would, you know, last in the marketplace a lot longer if they did things differently. So I decided I was going to change the way that we did this company. And I started and I've already gotten this kind of up and going and I've got a, a few guys that are doing it now where they came into my organization. They didn't know anything about, you know, construction or home remodeling services or anything. And I've taken them from literally sleeping in the warehouse to now being an owner of their own little small business that works inside of my business. They've take, they've gone from not knowing anything to being a technician, to being a, a, a lead, to being a supervisor, to being a project manager. And then I kicked them on in to uh, being their own business owner and in, in a franchise type model where they actually work for GRS pros as our company representative and they get to help make decisions and help uh, influence, you know, our, our product share and our, and our profit share and they get to enjoy in that and it's worked. And so now I'm looking at it from a different standpoint of like, if we're going to expand into different markets, then I need to have them go through the farm team to then get to professional ball. And it's just how I viewed it. And I think that it's going to work well. Um, so far, so great. And that's what we're kicking off next. Holy cow. That's a lot. What I heard there, which is really interesting, is you're taking someone that you're taking some of the risk off the table by building them up and creating an owner mindset mentality and getting them prepared for being an owner by going through all the steps, right? Where And the key part here is that when, in a pure entrepreneurial scenario, it's like uh, the best phrase that I've heard is like jumping off a cliff and building the plane on the way down, right? That's basically entrepreneurship in a nutshell. Well, what you're doing is you're helping, essentially, you have at least a glider or you have a, something as you fall off the cliff. Uh, so, you know, you don't have all the risk of all the rocks that are at the bottom. You have help uh, that's surrounding you and the experience to be able to make better decisions than if you had to do it all on your own, right? Which is super awesome and interesting how you're doing that. So, and very unique because franchising in the in franchising construction isn't like, you know, super popular. So there's obviously benefits to this from a perspective of GRS pros, branding and whatnot, but also you're helping build entrepreneurs that probably never thought that they would be entrepreneurs to begin with, which is really cool, right? You don't have to be the smartest person in the room. You just have to have people that are capable around you to be able to go to for help. So you've created even, for all intents and purposes, a mentorship program. For the most part, yeah. I mean, you think about it, most entrepreneurs, you know, I was, I'm a, I'm a serial entrepreneur. It, it started at an early age for me. Like, you know, I was that kid that would go buy, you know, $5 worth of candy, sell it for, you know, $12, go back, buy five more dollars and then pocket the rest and then constantly move and, and do that. And so I've always been a serial entrepreneur. I am a rare breed when we talk about society. Right. We're, we'll talk about less than, you know, 
probably 3% of, of society likes to be entrepreneurs. And, and the reason is, is that everyone is risk afraid, right? They're afraid of making a mistake. They're afraid of failing. They're afraid of it not working out. They're afraid of not having the security. They're afraid of not taking the next step or not knowing what next step is going to be, right? And, and part of that is, is that if you can eliminate some of that fear, right, through training, through mentorship, through organization, and you can get them through that fear uh, stage, then it's just a natural evolution for them to move forward, right? We, we had a couple of conversations a while back, and, and I don't remember exactly how we got into it, but we started talking about, you know, growth and scale, right? And, and part of that was that we had different philosophies on it, but, but the essentially what I came to was that for everything to go up, it has to go down first, right? So if you want to fly, you have to jump out of the nest. The only difference between me being an entrepreneur and not having the fear of jumping out of the nest, maybe I didn't know that I was jumping out of the nest. I just might have <laughs> fell out, right? But people that are looking at the nest and saying, oh, wow, that's really big. Part of my thing is to be that mama bird and stretch their wings out and flap them and kind of be there as they jump out the first time to be able to like lift them or guide them or show them. And, I, and I'm completely transparent with my team and let them just like, if you got issues about my books or you want to see how I do this, you want to know my thought process, we walk through these scenarios a lot, right? But those scenarios are really meant for them to get better at who they are and then to give them the support and the courage and the knowledge to then push out. I have probably launched somewhere around 60 guys into the construction field just to be their own owner operator, you know, and they have now taken on teams and they have, you know, scaled their own businesses. But, you know, part of that process of me in my own indulgence of transformation was to watch these guys launch out from underneath my stuff, my thing, and then produce uh, into greater aspects. And so uh, it's been really cool. Super insightful. And uh, for how much you're doing, I don't think people understand how awesome what you're doing really is. Like, I would say if there's anything, any nugget to take away from this, it's how you're building up your people. And how you do that will reflect on you in the long run. So for any owner entrepreneur that's in a position like Nate, this is the difference between short-term gains versus long-term returns. This is this right here is the difference. This is a huge difference maker. Yeah. So it's also the it's also the concept of legacy over profit. Obviously, you're an entrepreneur, business owner, you you need to make profit. That's the blood of a business, right? Sure. But legacy becoming so important because if you've already changed 60 people's lives to become owner operators of some sort, like, and you're, you know, you're just, you're just starting, right. You're, you're, this is the beginning. Yeah. So, so it becomes, it becomes the, Oh, wow. What's the impact you're going to actually have on the construction industry, but, but on these people's lives, like they're, you know, they're going to remember, man, Nate set me up for success. Nate did that. Like, you know, I'm, I'm a big believer in legacy. And, and at the end of the day, when, when I'm knocking on the coffin, like I want legacy, like I you can't take the money with you. Yeah. It's good to have money, but man, legacy, that's, that's, that's the thing that you want to end life with. And, and you're obviously building a whole bunch of it. 
Well, I'm trying to leave impact. You know, I think legacy kind of comes, that's not for me to determine, right? Mm -hmm. I, I, I'll be far be gone beyond this world when legacy is actually, you know, thought about or, or connected back to me. But impact that I make while I'm here, that's the thing that matters, right? But somebody said, they said, people don't remember blood, they remember names, right? And, and blood actually remembers who you are. And so it's one of those things that's like, if I can make a big enough impact where, you know, somebody 40 years from now is saying, hey, I, I met this guy, Nate Piper, and, and he, he's changed my grandfather's business that then gave me a, a, a business that I have family and supported and all that, then, then that's the legacy. But I don't, I don't get to see that. I just get to see the impact that I make today. So it is good insight. And I want to kind of further that. So why go franchise instead of going big? Well, you know, that's, that's where my philosophy changes between um, most of these big corporations and myself. Um, and, and, and there's no right or wrong way of doing this, right? Obviously business is business. These big corporations are building up, um, I look at them like Pac-Man. They're just going through and they're eating these big old balls and they're just chomping them up everywhere they can because they've got their big focus and everything else. The problem that they're doing is that, in my view, is that they are squeezing out the um, the entry, to, the barrier to entry for, for young men to be able, or not even young men, just guys and, and women and, and people that don't wanna be in the construction industry they're just eating up so much of the market share that there's not enough left out there. You know, one of the things that the construction industry was so far to, uh, took so long to be impacted was because it didn't have the tech that we were talking about. I mean, I, I grew up on pencil and paper and writing on boards and, and, you know, taking measurements and writing down a piece of paper and then going to the store and looking through it and carbon paper. We were talking about that earlier. Um, that's the world I grew up in. And it's just in the last five, six, seven years that technology has now gotten its way into the construction business where people are running off of iPads and phones and, and all of this. And, and so that, that technology that some of these guys have built are now you know eating large portions of the market, which are then minimizing the people that actually can come in and all the mom and pop stores and the family legacy and passing the business down. The other part of that is, is that there's a lot of, you know, kids that don't want to get into the construction industry. So they're just leaving it up for it to be taken by these larger corporations. I feel like I've got to, you know, hold the line and kind of recreate, um, you know, the, the sense of purpose of being able to, to own and operate a small business a small business up to $10 million a year is, is kind of what the franchise model will be. Uh, but that, that one franchisee can, can support a lifestyle and 40 or 60 families off of that and still have a really good um, Christmas and holiday and, and be able to provide for their family. And it's not, it's not a billion dollar a year company. It doesn't need to be. And, and then, you know, they become more like family and, and can kind of grow and, and be a part of that. And that's just, that's a better outcome or, or what I view would be a better outcome. So that's why I'm trying to chosen that franchise model. So to kind of further that, that discussion, 
Um, there's obviously some repeatability, repeatable processes when you're creating fran franchising uh, and you're doing franchise uh, in the same way that there's also repeatable process when going big. Um, but you wanted to stay, uh, stay franchise, stay franchisee. And, you know, I, I heard a little bit of it, but I wanted to kind of know your thoughts about uh, creativity and scale. Is creativity, um, because kind of smaller owner innovation, stuff like that, can create is creativity kind of the opposite of scale because it's not a repeatable uh, process, or at least from general perspective, it seems to be the opposite of scale. What are your thoughts on that? Uh, that's a great question. I love it when we go around and around on this. All right. <laughs> so, my philosophy is I believe, I believe scale is something that is, that is measurable. Right. And I also feel like creativity is measurable. Right. Most people don't think about creativity as measurable. So they think of creativity as um, arts and crafts or um, pretty things that they they do or creating a uh, a book or what have you. Right. Creativity is is the opposite of scale because scale is driven by numbers that show you know that you've increased from this point to this point that's what 99.99 percent of people think that scale is i think creativity is also scalable right and i think creativity actually increases scale far more than just representation of numbers and so if you get somebody and we were talking about this earlier about big companies and why they have so many evolutions of processes that shorten profit margins is because of creativity, right? They just don't show it in, in, in the way that everybody else would view it or read it. Creativity is the thing that changes the process, right? Creativity is the thing that, that actually forces somebody to change what they're doing to be better, right? Creativity is the thing that is the, the driving force behind the pain that they're feeling, right? Whenever, whenever a country goes to war, there's a spike in creativity because you've got to figure out how to, you know, deal with the resources that you've got. You've got to, you know, work with what you have. You've got to, you know, create something that's going to be different. Everything, every evolution has always come off the back of creativity during that process. And that's when this, the spike and scale jumps and one person does it and then everybody copies it. And so creativity, I think is, is the scalable thing that, that people should be looking at versus just a dollar or a number that shows steady process. I think that is a great explanation of this. I mean, we talked about this in the pre-interview. I was so fascinated by this because obviously, uh, well, very, very scale is you know repeatable processes. Less repeatable processes scale, and that certainly has made sense, right? The concept of change is being creative. So anytime that there's a new process or something has to be, uh, you know, evolved, being creative is a great example of how creativity 
can magnify scalability. Think about like streaming services, right? So Netflix being the first one in general, um, uh, and now how many of them are, right? It's just, it became, well, let's, ch let's change something. Let's be creative and change. We're not going to the movies anymore. We're not doing this thing. We're going to go this route, which is creative. And then the scale of obviously any streaming service at this point is, is you know, nobody can argue with it. Well, I think I think most people, and I and I absolutely agree with it, right? And I think most people view scale in in small steps, right? And I think corporations get into this mind frame of if we can increase by two and a half percent quarter over quarter over quarter over quarter over quarter over quarter, that is scale. My philosophy is a little bit different from the standpoint of like, okay, if I just increase that quarter percent, that's great. Well, what if I were able to increase that by 300% at one time and then increase, 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 increase from there? That's really the scalability because you have to be able to take leaps and, and, and strive to bigger steps in order to scale the things. Because if not, then they're constantly either you're getting smarter or you're getting stronger, one of the two. And so you either go up or you go down. So, so building scale uh, is incremental change, but creativity is what changes the magnitude of that scale. So you get to the next magnitude, uh, that next decimal point in order to be able to go you know, to then increment from there. So that 300% change or that, you know, even that 50% change, 50% change is massive in any, in any company, right? Let alone 300%. So when we're talking about um, scale, we're really talking and creativity, you're talking about also innovation. That's where when innovation is come, comes to the table, it might be sloppy in the moment, right? But obviously there's a new level of challenges that has, that has to be fixed, figured out, et cetera. But because you're at that new magnitude, new level of problems, you can now start figuring out from that next new level. And so this is where we see companies, you know, when you see those huge jumps, it's usually because of innovation or something that's not been tried before, all of a sudden it's tried and it, and it works for them. Well, I think, I think the second part of that, right? So we're talking about creativity right? And creativity is really the, the starter for scale, right? The, the second part of scale that I don't think it's talked about as much is the efficiency that comes with the creativity, right? So you create, you create a new system, a new thought, a new product line, a new, like whatever. Then there's new efficiencies that have to be created in that in order for it to actually keep increasing. Because if you, keep the same dollar amount that you take for the investment of development and you keep moving it into development and you don't start tweaking the process to, to reduce the cost of development or to reduce the cost of, uh, of uh, the exchange that you're having to make there, then that's where those two things kind of rub together. But I think it's, I think it's creativity and efficiencies are really what give that perception uh, in the scale, not just the, um, the number of the scale. Really insightful, Nate. Uh, I think we could debate this back and forth, but we don't have enough time on this podcast to be able <laughs> to be able to do this. So I want to, I want to move on. Um, you know, 
we had talked a little bit about people. So I want to kind of come back to that around uh, core values uh, and, and effects, because from there, uh, I, think that I think we have something else to discuss. So you were talking about using your oath and core values uh, and how it affect, you know, how does it affect your company? Where did that come from? Uh, I think that kind of came from a few different places. You know, obviously, um, my childhood, my parents um, kind of instilling in me some some responsibility. Um, you know, I'm a big fan of the Boy Scouts. Um, been a you know an adult leader there and, and really been heavily involved in that. So that's another portion of that that I kind of realized. Um, and it's just, I've had a lot of good uh, mentors throughout my life where I've kind of, I saw people that I respected and then I got close to them and, and a lot of them kind of kept coming down to the, the basic things, right? If, if you're able to live your life with integrity and, and honesty, then, you know, ultimately good things happen to you no matter what. And so I, I've kind of, always bred those into the core values of, of myself and, and the company that, any company that I've owned or operated or been a part of or affiliated with. So, you know, because of kind of your core values, uh, I think that you can also uh, talk about a little bit, you know, kind of your mentality, your perspective uh, around uh, and kind of tying in how you, your processes are uh, insure your company essentially does restoration. So how, how do you differ from other restoration companies? What is it that you've kind of talk a little bit about that? What's, what's the different path that you've taken? Because obviously you've already taken a different path in franchise. You talk about identity changes as well. So why not change also? Why not change at all? Well, yeah. it, it trailblazer, trailblazer. That's what that's called. <laughs> I, I've got a million arrows in my bag if you want to see them. <laughs> um, so it's interesting. I, I kind of view, so restoration is, is a portion of what we do. Uh, but when I got into restoration, essentially, um, the industry around restoration was, you know, in the beginning was, was a really good thing. And, and over time it's become very toxic. Uh, and, and we want to talk about franchisees. There's a ton of restoration franchisees. Um, there's, you know, billion dollar ones out of, you know, New York, there's billion dollar ones out of Texas. There's, you know, uh, green giants running all over the place and, and, you know, restoring things like it never happened, right? We we look at these these companies, and some of them are franchisees, and some of them not. But ninety nine percent of their um, their business model is based upon two things: one, either being a franchisee, or um, you know, basically being a slave to the insurance company, and they get involved in the insurance world, and that's that's ninety five percent of what they do and then there's not enough um you know value there for their employees because they how they're taught to think about their company and their their industry is that this is just a a low entry cleanup kind of component and they don't really spend a lot of time you know explaining to them why that they're doing the things that they're doing and they just say hey the insurance company will pay us for x amount of days 
So that's all we're going to do is we're going to just throw some drying equipment at it and be done and, and pull back out. And they don't really understand the science behind it. They don't understand or they think they understand the science behind it, but they don't think about what the impact it has if they don't do it properly. You know, and, I, and I'll give you some examples. I, I get a lot of phone calls to get come back in after one of these other restoration companies um, come in and they do their service and they don't get it all or they don't complete it. And then there, are, I get the I get the answer to the question to the homeowner of like, why didn't they do this job or that job? And, and my answer is I, I don't have an answer for you. All I can tell you is that it was incomplete. It wasn't done to, to a professional level. Uh, I'm sure they got paid from your insurance company, but these things have to happen in order for you to be back where you need to be whole. And so sometimes I got to argue with the insurance company. Sometimes I just pay out of pocket. So for me, I decided that I wasn't going to be, you know, handcuffed and hostage to insurance companies making determinations upon what's going on inside of a, a building structure that they're sitting in an office thousand miles away trying to tell me how to do things. And, and that kind of happened for me about 2013. And I just, you know, was an insurance adjuster. I'd been doing a ton of insurance projects, but I just had to walk away from it because morally I couldn't, I couldn't stand there and look at a, at a customer and say, Hey, um, they're only going to pay me X amount of dollars. So that's all the work that I'm going to do. And, and so it became a moral conflict for me. So I, I went out on a, on a journey and, and um, found a new stream of business and a new um, marketplace that was pretty much untapped. And I've been nursing that, that wheelhouse for quite a while, but it's one of the reasons why I, I don't follow the same path as most uh, restoration companies. So there are other ways, question, but there are other, so really what we're hearing is there's some magic and there are other ways to do business and to be creative, innovative, uh, yep. in and how to make scale. money <laughs> and then scale. Uh, and you don't, and the systems that are out there, you don't have to take the usual paths to be able to be, to be successful. Um, well, I think that comes back. I think that's a great point that you just made, right? Is that they don't have to be the usual path everybody has to take. What ends up happening is everybody thinks that they have to take the same path, right? Like every, every high school student thinks they have to go to college. Every person that gets into a franchisee thinks that they have to do it exactly the same way that franchisee says it has to happen. Like, the thought of being able to do something that's a little bit different and unique and scary is okay, you know, so. Yeah. No, so, I mean, I think that's the, that's the exciting part of entrepreneurship, right? Like there is mystery there. There is like, not everything is just given to you. Obviously being able to uh, have a, have a, a parachute or help is there there's obviously good things to be had to that but you know entrepreneurship is addicting and as you know as a serial entrepreneur and it is there is mystery and there is how do i figure out this puzzle how do i do this a little bit different that really gives me a blue ocean in comparison to a red ocean right so um no i, I and it seems like I, that's the that's the theme with you nate it's everything is like let's 
let's just do a little differently. Let's do this a little bit. Let's let's focus on things that maybe others aren't focusing on to, to really find those uh, those you know sweet juicy fruits that are 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 waiting for everybody. But if you don't think about things a different way, you don't find them. Well, so I think speaking. I think I think Go a ahead. lot of people today. I think a lot of people today are. You know, we we've we've trained our our children not to be um, inquisitive and not to go out and discover, right? I mean, I remember when I was a kid, after school, I'd run out the back door, I had a bike, I was in creeks, I was in, you know, playgrounds, I was going, jumping over neighbor's fences, all kinds of stuff. It is, it's like pulling you know, teeth to get my kids to go outside and play in our, in our front yard, right? And so there's not a lot of discovery that's really happening unless somebody else discovers it, you know? And then they, they report back and say, oh, this is great. You should do this. And, it, and it's even, and it, I know I've got a sinister kind of view on this, right? But I like taking travel and I like going places that are, that are foreign and, and not, not on the beaten track. I want to go off, right? And I want to discover something that hasn't been discovered. I mean, it's part of my personality, right? But I think that, you know, it's like Mount Everest. I have no intention of climbing Mount Everest because I know that, you know, after about, you know, 22,000 feet, I'm going to start dying and I still have <laughs> 7,400 feet to go. And I have like no, I have no ambition to do that. But it's funny that it's always, it became a fad, like, oh, I did it. So now everybody does it. And so now they've increased the price of going to the top of Everest to like $80,000. And you only have a short window. And the entire time that you're on it, you're like two feet away from somebody before you and someone behind you. The entire trek up there and, and back. And it's like, they're just doing it because somebody else did it. Like they're saying, oh, you got to discover this. But I think that people have forgotten how to just like go turn over rocks, right? And just get in your own backyard and, and experience things from a different different perspective. I, I think that we've lost that as a society and, and it's kind of sad, but it leads them not to wanting to venture out and try diff different things. They just want to go down the same path everybody else is taking. So, so speaking of venturing off the beaten path, uh, this ties in uh, I think I can tie this in. What experiences do you have leveraging, leveraging technology in your business to help you with being, I guess, more successful or helping you build scale? And tell us about your experiences there, both good and bad. <laughs> Are we talking about software? Oh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, well, like, like all things in my life, I like to go off the beaten path. Um, so I spent about six months going through talking with, checking, uh, playing with uh, a variety of software services that would actually fit our unique business model of being a, uh, a construction company, a restoration company, a remodel company, and, and so on and so on. And so there's a lot of nuance there. And there's a lot of, you know, uh, programs and software that are out there that, that are really great and decent, but they're just not what I needed. And so that led me off to go find some developers, some software developers and 
in uh, Argentina, where I spent a bunch of money trying to develop my own uh, software, uh, which was a complete nightmare because my the way that my brain works and the way that actually software is written are uh, apparently too different. And so, um, <laughs> you know, it was it was a it was a great venture. Um, obviously, we're going to have to talk about that later. See if we can figure out if there's other pathways there. But um, I think I think having a strong software system for your company to operate in is a must, especially. So it depends on what scale you're at, right? You you know, zero to $300,000 a year, you don't need as much um, software. You start getting over $300,000 a year, you get an employee, you gotta get some more stuff. You get over $2 million a year, you need to really start looking at uh, your software system and, and what that system's gonna be and how it's gonna operate and how it's gonna function and who's gonna use it, and all of that. If you wanna scale from 2 million to 5 million, you have to have a different software because the software that gets you to 2 million won't help you when you get to 5 million. And if you wanna go over 5 million, you gotta get into a different uh, software. And if you get over probably $12 million, you need to get Salesforce and get a full-time developer just to develop everything that you need and go ahead and spend that $10,000 a month. Oh man. So, uh, you know, when it talks about learning lessons. Um, what did you, you obviously had very, very specific numbers in terms of scale. And so uh, there's nothing that's infinitely scalable. 300,000, if I heard it's like 300,000, 2 million, 5 million, 12 million, right? Yeah, so there's nothing that's are, infinitely. Those are size numbers for, for basically software compatibility for what you can do and manage from those software platforms. So um, what was it, can you go a little bit deeper uh, as to, you know, what were the learning lessons? So anyone that's venturing into this, in this space and going, okay, I've, I, I need to scale more and I want to get creative, right? And let's say build my own software, get some software built for me. Can you give some learning lessons going down this path? Uh, and if you were to go back, do it all over again. What would you have done differently? Well, I think we've we've established that I'm probably stupid enough to go ahead and venture down this path multiple <laughs> times at this point going forward. Um, you know, some of the things that I've learned uh, when dealing with with software is that you you really need to know what you want your end game to be, right? How you want it to come out, like, and I think that gets lost when you're you've got all these people that are telling you what you should have and what it should be and all their functionalities and all of their cool gizmos and all of their um, high-end tech stuff. Let me just give you some, you know, a ballpark figure. I had, I got together with a software company a few years back and they promised me all the bells and whistles and they said, this will work here and this will work there and this is great and all of these other things. And then what ended up happening is that I got such a robust system that I couldn't use it. I couldn't function with it. I couldn't, I couldn't manage it. My guys in the field couldn't put in the data. Bad data in comes bad data out, right? I ended up spending close to $130,000 
trying to manage the system that doesn't, it, it, my business at that point wasn't big enough and didn't have enough employees to manage a system that really needed, you really needed to have a hundred employees to manage the system, right? For it to be a communications tool, a GPS tracking tool, a notes tool, a billing function, uh, a, a Gantt chart, like all of those things, right? You really needed to have around 100 employees for it to, to work. And they said, oh, well, you only need about 10 employees for it to work. Well, 10 employees will barely get you started. I mean, it's it's the bare minimum to entry, right? And so when, you, when anybody's looking at evaluating software, think about the outcome that you really want to get out of it and how to simplify it so minute that your guys are like bored with having to enter it in, right? Like, oh, it's just so easy, boom, boom, boom. Don't think about all the bells and whistles and how it's going to connect to QuickBooks and how it's going to, you know, connect and focus down. You want to stay as small as you can in your software with minimal, minimal stuff until you hit that, that $1 million mark and gross sales then you can move up to the next level and then the next level and then the next level. You do not want to go in saying, hey, well, this thing's only $500 a month to get this, you know, robust system and it's going to do this, it's going to do that. You're going to spend more in admin cost and you're going to spend more in lost time and lost wages and, and frustration than you would on, on just buying the $500 system. If you're not there, don't get it. It's a waste of time. It's a waste of money. It, it's frustrating. Yeah, we've been beating the drum about if you you got to have good processes. That's the only time technology is going to work out for you the right way. So, uh, you know, I feel like we're, we're saying that more regularly and regularly, Will, that it's just you need good process. Like technology is amazing, but if you have bad processes, it, it doesn't matter. Like it doesn't, technology doesn't fix process. It just, it automates it and magnifies it. Uh, well, last question for you here, Nate, and uh, another reflective question. You know, we, we like to be very reflective here at uh, Building Scale. So if you were to go back 20 years and give yourself some advice, what would you tell yourself? That's a great question. Um, well, how do we know that I didn't already go back and give myself, you know, that question? And, and <laughs> I'm sitting here today, right? Um you know, I, I would probably, I'd probably go back and tell myself, you know, enjoy the ride. Um, the scars on your knuckles and the scuffs on your boots are going to match. Have grit. Don't give up. Never quit. Keep pushing forward. You know, I think, you know, there, I think everybody wants to talk about, hey, I wish I would have bought Google. I wish I would have bought Amazon. <laughs> oh yeah, all the rest of that stuff. You know, I'm I'm really I'm really happy and content with my life, right? And I and I'm really happy with where I've where I've come from and and what I'm able to accomplish. And I'm really hoping that at the end of this, the the guy that that's you know 20 years from now when I'm in my late 60s is saying, hey, did you you listen to me, all right? Or or I've made that guy more proud than I am of you know the guy in my twenties. The guy in my twenties was he was about a drunken buffoon, you know. Him and Nagel would have been best friends. Uh, they probably were best friends. They were out <laughs> running around on a regular basis, you know. Oh, that's awesome. Uh, good advice. Definitely, definitely good advice. Um, 
Nate, we're going to obviously drop in all your uh, information, uh, social links, all that kind of stuff into the, the show notes here. Is there uh, any way that people should contact you specifically you want to give them? You know, yeah, I, I'm really open. And, and uh, if somebody's got some questions or they're, they're stuck in their business or they just want to have a conversation and say, hey, have you ever been through this? What have you? If they want to reach out to me through uh, info at GRS Pros, um, they can get a hold of me if they put my name in there. Um, my my assistant will she reads through all of it. She'll get it to me. It'll probably take about forty eight hours before I respond. But um, yeah, send it to me. I'm 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 really friendly. I not overly friendly, but I I'm friendly enough to be able to help people and and kind of put them on the right path. That's awesome. We'll make sure that we drop that in the the show notes too. Nate, you have been spectacular. Thank you so much for Thank you. all the creativity of scale that you've obviously shared with us. Um, and we can't wait to uh, have you back and, and see where things are. And maybe Absolutely. maybe before the 20-year mark, maybe we'll get you back before that. <laughs> <Absolutely>. <laughs> all right. You guys have been great. I really enjoyed it. So thank you. No problem. All right. Well, to all our listeners, I hope you enjoyed this episode. Um, and until next time, adios. Adios. Thank you for joining us today and listening to this episode. If this episode did help you, then be sure to share it with someone else who needs to hear it. If you want to be a guest on the podcast or looking for additional help on your journey to find more wealth, scale, and freedom in your AEC company, visit our AEC resources page at spotmigration.com backslash AEC hyphen resources. resources.